the script that I had written on my own uh, just to learn. It was my learning script and it actually got made. It got changed a lot, of course. Hi, and welcome to Best in Fest. And I'm Leslie Lepage, the director of the La Femme International Film Festival. And this is a podcast for people who are interested in advancing their career in TV and film and learning the dirty little secrets of Hollywood that makes it all work. And today I'm super happy to have writer, producer, just everything, Bob Nickman. Um, fabulous, fabulous, long, um, time writer producer he's an american comedian actor television producer television writer uh some of the iconic programs he has been involved with is mad about you freaks and geeks danny according to jim big day rita rocks and roseanne oh my god welcome bob <laughs> thank you so much i didn't know i was so so great i forgot about most of that stuff already <laughs> You are so amazingly great. Do you do you have any idea or did you have an idea when you were working on these shows that they would be such iconic landmarks in the television comedy platform? Well, when I the first show I did was Roseanne and it was already that. So that was kind of an amazing uh, thing to happen. And uh, it happened sort of. Uh, sideways which was kind of great and um and, and then from there i you know i didn't know any of the other ones really uh by the time i got on mad about you it was already a hit um and i knew just by the what we were doing on freaks and geeks that that was going to be something whether it lasted or not because we weren't sure and it, it, it didn't i mean it did one season but i knew what we were doing was special I did know that, but I didn't know how it was going to play out for the future. And it actually became even more than what I had uh, anticipated. So uh, I'm very proud of that work, too. So. Okay, let's take you back a bit. And, uh, you know, comedy is hard. People think comedy is, like, easy. Comedy is way harder than drama. And how did you get bit with this? comedy bug where where did you have your aha moment and then and then where did you transition into writing comedy which is even harder well okay well i'm gonna go way back to childhood and okay i'll go way back to childhood um how long are we talking by the way <laughs> we are talking as long as you want to talk oh okay i you know i'm not gonna I, i'm uh yeah, I just didn't want to know that there was like a 10-minute constraint, and so I wouldn't waste too much time on, on history. But when I was a kid, and I would watch television, and I would see comedians on TV, it was a revelation that an adult could act that way. I didn't know you were allowed to act that way as an adult. I just thought, you know, adults were, you know, serious. They had jobs and families, and they did what they did. I was, you know, I grew up in Ohio. There was no comedians around. It was just not a thing. But I saw it on TV and I went, wow, it, it, it registered it, to me. And I was always somebody that liked, and, and I had a grandfather who was extremely funny. And he loved to, to just be that guy, you know? And, um, but it was just who he was. He just, that, and so f between my love for him and the appreciation for what he would do and seeing these adults getting away with, <laughs> is how I looked at it, being silly and getting paid, not that I was thinking about income at the time, I wasn't. I thought, geez, what a what a cool thing. So I put it on the back burner. I thought it's not even a possibility, right? So I, you know, I go off to college and 
you know, and I'm um, taking some writing classes and English classes, and I'm writing stuff, and uh, and I'm drawing. I'm doing, you know, I'm a slightly a cartoonist, not a great one, but I'm I'm good enough that it's interesting. So I, I was doing, uh, I did a comic book in college, and um, so it was comedy and drawing, and um, I had a guy come up to me uh, that was living in the dorm. And he said to me, he had gone to see uh, Bob Saget had come to the college in Ohio. It was Ohio University. And he said, you're as funny as that guy. Why don't you, you should go do comedy. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no. So I did. I didn't. I just thought it was just, you know, and I would watch Make Me Laugh and stuff like, you know. So I, I was, um, I went from college to um playing music in bands and blues bands. And during that time, I was starting to do stuff on stage that was comedic with the band. So it was an odd sort of combination of blues and, and outrageousness. And, and mixed in with that was a, the requisite amount of um, mind altering substances, which really fueled a lot of the crazy. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, and it was just, you know, it was just, it was a different time, at least for me it was. I was yeah. And then the, the bottom kind of fell out of the, 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 uh, the band thing. And um, right around that time, a comedy club opened up in Columbus, Ohio, where I was living. It was called Giggles. <laughs> yeah. So all the guys from Make Me Laugh and other were coming in to perform and i was absolutely taken with it and they started to have open mics so i started to go up there and and um i wasn't that great obviously at first i bombed a lot but i i loved it and i started to go on the road as a stand-up opening for these guys that were you know la comedians and then I moved to Boston, which had a, a big comedy scene, and you didn't have to travel and go on the road. You could make a living there. So I basically was, I went up there to see, check it out. I really liked it. Uh, the guys were like, yeah, you should move here. This, you know, you'd be a good fit. So I, I stayed there for a, a number of years, um, making pretty good money. Uh, there was also an escalation in the, in the drug use, and I kind of hit a bottom with that. And... Um, I moved, I, I was ready to come to LA, so I did. And I got, I moved to LA in 1985 and I got sober at the exact same time. I just was like, I'm done, I'm done. I wanna have a life, I don't wanna be, you know. And so I was, um, I was you know, working a lot at the improv in, in Los Angeles and I was on the, I was on the corner of uh, Third Street in uh, um, Colorado uh, in, in Santa Monica. And I see this limo park there, and uh, Tom Arnold and Roseanne get out of the get out of the thing. And I knew them from the from uh, the improv. And they were like, "Why don't you, you should you Why don't you um, be a writer? You know, you're a good. You're a really good writer." And I used to have a lot of people tell me, "Well, you're you know, you're actually a better writer than you are a performer." Which right, you, which means which, which means your jokes are great, <laughs> but your delivery sucks, right? <laughs> Well, it wasn't sucks. It was just they were, it was it was okay. It was good, but it, it was like maybe B plus performer, uh, A writer, right? So, 
I said, no, I'm a performer. I didn't even think that that was something I was going to do. And shortly after that, this was sort of this confluence of forces that came together. The bottom started to fall out of the stand-up world, and there were less gigs for less money. And I was really uh, tired of traveling. I didn't like it that much. Um, it, it's, a, it's a young man's game. It's very hard on the, on the body. It's very hard on the mind. Certainly socially, it's, it's weird to be traveling all the time. And it's not for everybody. And Tom Arnold was starting a show called the Jackie Thomas Show, which didn't last very long. So I called him up and I said, can I, uh, can I uh, have a job on your, on your show as a writer? I'd never written anything other than a couple of crappy movies with some other people. And he called me back. He goes, no, uh, I'm staffed up. You can start on Roseanne and like, you know, right after Christmas. And this was like in November. So I, I got my first job through the, uh, that connection of knowing him and him knowing and her knowing that I was, you know, a good writer and, and funny. And I learned how to write on that show. That's, that's actually what happened. Um, I, I remember thinking, this is a great opportunity. Don't screw it up by not learning the craft. So I got a, I, I, yeah, I met a couple of people on the show uh, who kind of mentored me and taught me how to write in that, that particular show style, but also the sitcom style. And luckily I was a good joke writer and it was a joke heavy show. So it worked really, really well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that learning curve must've been, you know, a, a bit, uh, <sighs> cumbersome you know at first so it was intimidating that is, really is the word it was intimidating here's here's people that have been doing this that are you know really adept at it and and i didn't know how to do it at all and luckily at the time the, the staffs were huge on shows and that show had like over 20 people on the staff so yeah there was a lot of money it was the number one show and so they had a huge staff and what they did was they they had um sort of a main writing room that did uh, the stories and then uh, and the writing kind of of the the initial scripts and then they would farm out portions of the script to satellite joke rooms and you would punch all you would do is write jokes and punch it up so i got a pretty good yeah so i i basically was doing what I did for myself for other uh, characters. And it was really fun. Lots of laughs, lots of laughs. I mean, a lot of crazy too, but it was, it was lots of laughs. How long did it take you to, to kind of um, get your footing there? Cause first of all, it's really difficult to, just to, to, to jump in and, and be the gag, the gag guy, right? The joke guy um, to, to transition into your next step up on Roseanne. Like how long did it take? And what was, what was your transition? Yeah, that's a really good question. I uh, the um, I was there three and a half years, so you know it was a slow trajectory to kind of um, I was writing scripts um, on my own to try to you know have something. Uh, when and I had written this script, um, and I had a friend of mine, you know, who had a lot more experience, give me a lot of notes and help me, you know, make it good. And then there was a <laughs> One of the crazy days when uh, she decided she didn't like the script after, you know, we'd worked on it. And um, I told somebody, I said, well, I have one if you if you want to read it. And they and so it um, 
it, it got made. The script that I had, the script that I had written on my own, uh, just to learn, was my learning script, and it actually got made. It got changed a lot, of course, but uh, but you know, so by the time, but it got made and got your foot in the door. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, at the time, you know, it, to I think I was like a, a executive story editor or something like that. Uh, by the time I left. Whatever the you know I don't I forget the tiers now it's staff writer and story editor and executive story editor and co-producer I don't I forget what I left at but because I had risen up just by um, you know being there um, I had a certain level of um, uh, acceptance in the in the business and on a hit show that was you know that was really a kind of a golden ticket to work quite a bit after that. So I was very fortunate that I was in, you know, that I was in the right place at the right time, but with a lot of, now I'm talking, you know, 10 to 15 years of stand-up experience when that happened. It wasn't, it wasn't fast. Yeah. It wasn't over, overnight. Yeah. 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 That's, I think people forget, you know, overnight in the industry isn't really overnight and overnight is a decade. (laughs) Over like you know, he's been working as an actor for fifteen years, and then he finally gets his break. That's overnight. Twenty year overnight success story. Exactly, which is I think um, a fallacy for some of these uh, kids listening coming out of film school, because I think overnight is like, oh well, I I get my my launching right when I get out of film school, and I'm like, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you got to put in ten, ten, ten years. Yeah, well, it usually doesn't, but if it does. If it does, by some fluke, it won't last because you don't have generally because you don't have the depth that comes with the the struggle and the experience of those ten years. Let's say we'll just pick that as a as a time. Right. Well, from Roseanne, you you jumped onto the Drew Carey show, which is another heavy you know joke show, and then from there you went into Mad About You. Can you talk about kind of that? trajectory well i you know what i want to talk about this is an interesting thing oh tell me it has to do with what you just asked are it's when you go to a new show it's like moving to a new village it has its personalities it has its ways of doing things it has it has its rules it has its weird stuff that goes on um egos uh some people are threatened some people are nice some people are and then you also are probably dealing with a different set of uh, studio people and development people that are involved and so there is a lot of pieces that you have to navigate when you move to a new new show like that and sometimes you know it it's a great fit uh and sometimes it's not so sometimes you have you have like it could, it could just be you know one or two things that are just really unpleasant, and you're and it, and it has nothing to do with talent or anything like that. It's just not a it's not a good fit. So you have to not only learn the personalities and the way it's it's um, operated, but you also have to learn you know the voice of a show, which is um, that was never too hard for me. I could usually pick that up pretty quick. But navigating people is a very tricky thing. You know, it's um, sometimes it's really fun and you make great lasting friends. And other times you're like, I can't stand this. This is a really weird scene and I don't I don't fit here. 
Um, but there's so much, um, I mean, your income is, is, uh, you know, part of that. So you have to, you know, make it work if you want to keep the job, <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. And, um, it, it was always an interesting thing to move to a new, to a new show, you know, just because it there were so many pieces to it and the ways of doing things. So, yeah, that, that coming off of Roseanne in that really happy environment because they knew you, they accepted you, they trained you, they grew you from a little, you know, a little baby into, you know, a powerhouse. Did you not have that experience when you went into the other shows since you're kind of some I did and some I didn't? And I wouldn't say Roseanne was a happy experience. I'd say it was an amazing experience with a lot of chaos. A tremendous. I mean, as if you've ever read the paper. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, there was a lot. There was a lot. There was a lot of mayhem and a lot of chaos. I seemed to. Uh, uh, my, my attitude was, "Don't dance too close to the flame," and that that was. And so I did okay there. And there was. And I'll say this about Roseanne: she really did appreciate people that came from the stand-up world. Uh, she had a she had a real uh, affection for those of us that knew what that was. So she was always very nice to me, except you know, the, and but it, mo you know, most of the time she was really cool with me. But I, you know, she had some she had some uh, notorious kinds of uh, re reactivity. <laughs> she she had a bite. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what made her great uh, as a stand up and on the show. But some of the personal demons, you know, uh, bled into, you know, the workaday world and it was not the healthiest environment. But certainly creatively, um, that, that it was really uh, amazing when it was amazing. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the boom back. I shouldn't say back then, but during that time frame, that was kind of the boom of television. Then we got into this nastiness of reality television <laughs> uh and and we are back in this uh, uh e boom again of television streaming limited series tv um how have you what's the main difference from you know that standard television to the limited series to what's happening now what are you seeing as potentially trajectory into the future of, of TV. Well, the interesting thing about what's happening is there are so much, so many outlets and so much content that is needed. You know, back like when I was on Roseanne, we were getting like 35 shares of, uh, you know, things that you can't even imagine getting now. I don't even think the Super Bowl gets that. But so there were, there was only three channels, you know, major channels, and then a fourth Fox. And then, you know, cable was considered very um, fringe and kind of um, pathetic in a sense. And as that's, as, as that's grown, it's, it's provided op more opportunities, although, the, you know, mostly the money is different. It's, it's just a lesser amount of money. So the, um, if you couple that with the consolidation of the big corporations that own the, all the media, um, there is a, you know, there's been a certain amount of um, <clears throat> lessening of opportunity for a financial gain. And, and there's a much more control over uh, content. And now, now let's add in some of the, 
things you're not allowed to say because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. That to me is hurt. Certainly, comedy. I, I find you know a lot of the things I watch on certainly, and I don't watch a lot because it doesn't make me laugh that much. But a lot of the stuff I'll, I'll check it out on network television. It's just it's bland. It has no teeth. Um, and so I think you know most people that want something with a little bite have to go to some of the premium cable channels to see things that are actually funny <laughs> if, if we're talking comedy. well yeah i mean but you even look at um a show that you worked on which was mad about you that even had bite N maybe not much of much as much a bite as roseanne but that had bite and a lot of those comedy shows in that kind of section of time you know i think people forget that that there's there's always an undercurrent to comedy in fact most of my stand-up comedy friends you know have that undercurrent which makes them funny because they bring that undercurrent to the stage that's what makes you laugh is like they're looking at the perspective of humanity in a different skew right and a lot of the comedy now is is very tamed um more politically correct and and it's lost its edge. Even some of my stand-up comedian friends have mentioned, you know, time and time again that that they've had to some of the jokes that they were doing five years ago they can't do anymore because they're it. They'll get booed. They'll get canceled. They'll get whatever because that's a little too on that fringe of a political statement that's funny. <laughs> than the safer joke that they deliver on stage. Um, how are you dealing with that uh, in the current creation of, you know, television? As you said, the stuff isn't making you funny. It doesn't, you know, it's making you laugh. When you say, oh, am I dealing with it? You mean watching it or, or because? No, as in, as in your, your writing, your comedy writing, um, the shows that, you know, you're, uh, moving forward in creating. Well, I, uh, basically have retired from that business because of some of what we're talking about and some of has to do with, uh, being a certain age and not being accepted just, just on that particular thing um that that's real uh and i knew that that would happen because i saw it happening when i was younger <laughs> to people that had been, been around now that's not true of every single person but you know um so i'm i feel fortunate that i uh was able to <laughs> um have a good pension and and be able to segue out of that because it's it's a very difficult lifestyle because there were many shows that I was on that was um, you know I wasn't getting home till one or two in the morning and I physically can't can't handle that now I wouldn't be able to do it um, so so that's another aspect so um, I have pursued other interests uh, since then and um, the transition was a little bumpy for me because I wasn't used to it, but now I, I really love the way my life has gone, and um, I still produce uh, uh, stand-up shows um, in um, for sober uh, comedians and sober audiences. So that's one of the side things that I do that I still love. So I have a hand in actually my original thing, which was stand-up. So. That goes on, and yeah, and then and so yeah, in terms of trying to be in um, 
the business part of it, I don't do that anymore. But you do because you are still producing comedy shows. And, and, and from the perspective of, of even doing your passion right now, which is, which is this sober show, sober audience, you've seen a difference in the delivery of, of comedy uh, from, from 10 years back to currently now. Do you feel the politically correct comedy is, is really going to be that's what the new comedy line is? Or do you think somebody's going to shake it up and just completely <laughs> break that and, 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 and have that be their trajectory? You know, that's a really interesting thing because, you know, obviously I don't know. Most things are cyclical, so that is, that's a very strong possibility. But the, the odd thing that I was just thinking when you were talking was that when you think about this politically correct comedy and think, oh, you can't say that, then you look at the rest of the, the divisiveness and, the, and, the, and the, the, I'm going to say the word, hatred that goes on in, in, in the country with just absolute horrific things that people are, are saying and doing on, a, on the real level, it's, it, it doesn't even make sense that that would, that, that there, there'd be this other thing going on in, in, the, in comedy. My take on what comedy should be is that it is a safety valve for the society. It's like letting off the steam that everyone's thinking, but no one is, is, is saying. Um, and it does have a bent toward, um, you know, uh, intelligence, hopefully, <laughs> and awareness of, of facts and things like that. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think because you mentioned someone is has uh, uh, a certain uh, persuasion of some kind that that's a negative. It doesn't have, it, you know, I mean, mean spirited is doesn't work anyway in comedy. People don't like to see a mean spirited comedian. I don't think. I mean, I don't. But I like to see somebody who uh, rocks the boat, tells the truth, and makes you think about something. And what are your what are my motives for thinking the way I, I think? I mean, I, I don't I get offended by almost nothing unless it's cruel. I don't I don't like that. Um, but if it's based in some kind of a um, a truth, then what is the problem really? To me, I, I I'm like, well, that is true. Uh, maybe I don't like it, but it is kind of true, <laughs> you know, and it's, so, so, so we'll see, you know, I, and I don't think, you know, words can, can hurt, but they can also, um, elevate. They, they do both. And what's wrong with a, a venue where you can experiment with that and, and, you know, a comedian should be able to go on stage and say what they say. And if it fails, they're going to take it out anyway. It isn't this, you know, I mean, I don't really see too many comedians getting up there and spewing, uh, spewing hate. What I do see are um, sometimes are people that are looking to get upset and finding something to get upset about. Um, and it's and my new my new thing is that uh, righteous indignation is the new cocaine. <laughs> Everyone's getting high off of it. Where do you see yourself in the next you know, five years with all this um, journey you've had through and in and out of the studios and then circling really back into stand-up comedy uh, um, as a producer. Where do you want to go? 
Well, I, I want to keep doing those shows. And by the way, because the audiences are sober audiences and, they've, and they were out there doing the crazy shit, you can't knock them, it's, which is it, negatively. People are, that's why I love those audiences. You can, you know, I mean, people were, were snorting cocaine off of urinals. You can't really get them too upset. <laughs> yeah, there ain't nothing that's going to shock them, right? <laughs> so that part I love about the, that specific, specific audience. Now, also what I've done is, um, this isn't, uh, well, I don't know if it's, I won't say it's interesting. Um, I started a podcast a few years ago. Um, and it's not in comedy and it's not about show business at all. When I got sober in 1985, I started to um, look into ways of improving my life and being healthy from exercise, food, meditation, body work, any type of, some people might call them woo-woo practitioners, but uh, I'm not that woo-woo. I, so I'm not granola, as my daughter says. She says, Dad, what's granola? And I go, oh, that's the, you know, Birkenstock flowing dress, uh, <laughs> you know, thing. But, yeah, but I, you know, I do a lot of that. Right, right, right. I do a lot of that stuff, but I'm not mental. I'm not like, going, hey, you know, I'm not doing that. But so I started a podcast a few years ago in that field. It is, and I interview people in the fields of body, mind, and spirit. It's called The Exploding Human with Bob Nickman. And The Exploding Human is about exploring, expanding, and becoming something more. That's what the explosion is into this next level of personal growth, you know. And so I've always loved this stuff. It was, uh, it was always something I had to find for myself because it wasn't um, in the zeitgeist so much when I started doing it. And now I I thought, well, geez, I, I love this stuff. I talk about it all the time with certain people, you know, and um, so I decided I was going to create this show that it's, I call it, call it a uh, clearinghouse for people to find ways to improve their life and to make things better for themselves. Not everything on there is something that people are going to want to try, but I've done 150 episodes of this thing and I just absolutely love doing it. I'm meeting the most interesting people that are um, seekers. It's all about, it's, it's, it's seekers, you know, it, it, to me, it's almost like the next level of, um, it's it's creative in the sense that you know people are are looking to make something um, more of their life and 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 feel present and great, but it's real instead of fictitious, um, like like writing is. And I believe me, I love I, I I love comedy as much as I've ever loved it. I there's nothing better than sitting around laughing. There's that's the height of of evolved in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> well let, let's i mean we're moving into a new year in fact um a couple of shows back i had a um energy healer um alkaline specialist um meditation expert named cynthia brooks on the show um moving into the new year and with all these young youthful people listening to the show and and other people that are not youthful that are you know dealing with the let's say the suppressive or sometimes suppressive environment that television and film and entertainment can have 
What is some tools you have gained from your experience uh, interviewing people, what they've said, how you operate, that that you can suggest to them in keeping their positivity going because you know you just look at an actor right they they audition they audition audition they can audition for 50 shows they don't get anything on that 60th show they get a call back and they book the job and then they go 30 40 shows audition they get nothing and then they you know book another job and they have to keep that mentality healthy right during that depressive they don't love me they're not hiring me i'm not good what can you tell these people listening Something I wish I had been told uh, younger, which is you're going to hear no a lot more than you're going to hear yes, a lot more. It's not personal. It's not personal. And and if you're going if if you love the thing you're doing, keep doing it. But get ready for no, um, and take those no's and just work on whatever your your craft is and become undeniable if you can do that, you know, and that really is, you know, the, if you can become undeniable in what you do, you'll, you'll work in that. B, uh, keep a good attitude, uh, which, you know, wasn't my strongest suit <laughs> being who I am. <laughs> Most of the stand-up comedians I know have, have that as their weakness. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I, uh, if and if you're a you know a friendly person and and are kind to people that that goes a long way you know the when i and i don't like the word connections in terms of um being disingenuous but i think if you're sincerely somebody that connects with people that's of great value i mean mo many of the the certainly the jobs i had were because i had some type of a relationship with someone who either put in a word for me or knew me from my work. And, you know, uh, particularly in the sitcom world, you're spending more time with those people than you are your families and friends. You're there 10, 12 hours a day. So one of the things that people who are hiring in that business, they want to know, can I sit in a room with this person all day long, five days a week? Because it's, it's, it's uh, like a family in a, in a sense. I mean, dysfunctional family, but can you make it work? <laughs> so I, I would say, you know, if, if you don't love what you're doing, uh, the rejection can be extremely overwhelming. Um, and there's keep an open mind to um, other avenues that come off of this thing that you love. So there's a lot of ways to do comedy. For example, you can write on a sitcom, you can do stand up, you can write movies, you can have an internet show. You can, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, that's a whole other thing that people do. You know, I mean, that, that, that didn't exist. Uh, having a YouTube channel that makes, makes you a, a living uh, could be comedy, could be, you know, you could be um, a 17 year old girl doing makeup. You know, I, I don't know what they do. I mean, <laughs> I've seen some stuff. I'm like, why? But, you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a big world. Uh, and so, you know, to invent something for yourself that other people aren't doing and they can't, you know, the more you can do something that, that fewer people can do, the more success you'll have because there's, you know, that's, you become a commodity that can't be um, purchased anywhere else. Did that make sense? I, I kind of went all over the place. 
it it does it does it does um especially when you know we have people listening in that are doing a, a wide gamut of of items you know the attitude is really a key and taking and understanding that no isn't personal is also key and i think a lot of filmmakers a lot of actors uh producers they just have to develop that skin and understand no is really just one step closer to a yes right you have to get a series of no's well i yeah and sometimes you know enough no's can be like maybe this isn't the direction i should be going and that's the tough thing is is like do i find a new avenue do i quit and move back to Indiana and work at my dad's plant. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Or, or is it that I need more skill? You know, do I need to develop my skill more? It, you know, it, it, but it isn't, it isn't necessarily a defeatism attitude. It has to be much more analytical. I think of looking at and going, well, you know, what's the timing uh, what's my skill base? Is it my skill base, right? So is it is it is it talent um, and execution, <laughs> or is it timing, right? Or should I, you know, or should I go work at my dad's uh, warehouse? You know, for for me, I have to say, I never thought about the end result of any of the things I was doing. I just did them because I had to. I had to do. I had to play music. I had to try stand up. I, I had to. I didn't want to be, I asked myself, do you want to be at the end of your life wondering whether you could have done something that you didn't even try? That to me is probably, and that is the biggest regret that people have, they say, uh, when they interview people on their deathbeds, the things they didn't try because they were afraid. And I think that, I think trying and if there is such a thing as failure is better than not trying and wondering. That seems to me to be agony. Um, to to wonder whether you could have done something when you when your inner uh, intuition tells you that that's what you want. Are there delusional people that do stuff and suck? Yeah, <laughs> there are. But you know, on the flip side, I'll look at some you know TV shows going. Oh my gosh, this person can't act, and they've been like constantly booked on TV shows. <laughs> so you know, talent isn't necessarily you know, the end all and beat all it's attitude. Yeah. And it's just, some of it's just a great hop of the ball and, and people keep going, you know, it's, there's all of those jokes about the, you know, the talentless people being the luckiest people in the world. You know, that joke, it was, it was, the joke was this guy's on an airplane and he falls out of the airplane and he hits the ground and he breaks every bone in his body and he's laying in the hospital and, uh, his friend comes to see him. He goes, oh, my God, I can't believe you're alive. You're the luckiest man in the world. Because no, I'm not. Alan Thicke is. <laughs> and that's, you know, Alan Thicke, that was the, how I heard it. It could be anybody uh, that you don't have, have a whole lot of. And uh, I don't have any, actually any opinion on Alan Thicke. But, you know, it was that was the joke that was going around when he had a TV show on because it was so um, bland, I guess. I don't know if it's a, uh, a dirty little secret, but it's it's more of a, and this works in my personal life too, know when to keep your mouth shut. 
Because once the words come out, you can't put them back in. So the three questions you can ask yourself, and this is true of, of uh, workplace or marriage or whatever, um, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me right now? And if you ask those three questions, usually by the time you get to the third one, you're not going to say the thing you think. I, I had, have said things that were possibly um, too true and that made people uncomfortable. At least my opinion was that they were. And, you know, you can burn bridges that way. I, I burned a few in my day. Um, and, yeah, so I, that's not really a secret. It's more of like a, a little... Uh, advice i i think you almost have to learn it the hard way um if you're you know um, a mouthy guy like uh, i was um so i i'm 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 quiet a lot more than i used to be me too i was a little mouthy uh younger years as well when's your next show coming up it's probably going to be in january but i'm going to wait till after the holidays and i usually you know it'll probably be the end of january so i don't i don't have it set up yet because um the, the everything's sort of in flux with the surge in COVID and other types of things that are going on for live performance and, and um, people are traveling. So it's, you know, I have a, a very small uh, uh, group of people that I can use uh, that are uh, sober comedians. There's a lot of them, but not as many as the other kind. Great. So where can they, where can they listen to you on your podcast? So it's on all the platforms and, you know, iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. It's called The Exploding Human with Bob Nickman or just The Exploding Human. And um, there is a website, theexplodinghuman.com. If you go over there, you can um, listen to episodes and read synopses and see photos of my guests. And there's a little bio on myself. So you can... Uh, check that out and see the kind of stuff I'm doing. If you're interested in uh, body, mind, spirit, which is, has nothing to do with show business and everything to do with it at the same time. So uh, go, you know, check that out and uh, see, see if that, uh, uh, you know, speaks to you. And if it doesn't, I'm fine with that. Well, thank you, Bob Nickman, for coming on Best in Fest. For all those that want to uh, rate us, rank us, love us, pass us on, um, please do so uh, at the Best in Fest. We're on all the platforms, and the video component of this show will be on the YouTube channel, La Femme Film Festival. Thank you, Bob, for coming on Best in Fest. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, been a real pleasure talking to you. You're delightful. Oh, thank you. Delightful. Best and fest, we're out. 